Would you open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4? Bodybuilding is huge these days. It's a multi-billion dollar business. People want beautiful bodies, built bodies, and they're willing to uh, jog, run, bike, nip, tuck, stretch, do whatever to get it. One poll revealed how much people want to change their bodies. A simple question was posed. If you could change one thing about your life, which is a generic, wide-open question, what would it be? Almost everybody said appearance. Different body type, different height, different weight, different hair color, etc., etc. I want to talk to you tonight about building up another body, the body of Christ. Because whether you like it or not, you're a part of us. And whether you even fellowship here regularly, you're a part of us in terms of the body of Christ. One of Paul's favorite definitions, analogies, you might say, of the church, is that he called us a body. He likened the church unto this living organism with a multiplicity of features and abilities, just like a human body, working together, yet diverse in all of its parts. But he loved the phrase, the term, the body of Christ, even in the book of Ephesians. It's, it's regularly repeated. Go back with me to chapter 1. Verse 22. He, that is Christ, put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Next chapter, chapter 2, verse 16. That he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. Look at chapter 3, verse 6. That the Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ through the gospel. Chapter 4, verse 4, which we read last time. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling. Chapter 4, verse 12. For the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. Verse 16. From whom the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies, according to the effective working by which every part does its share, causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. Sometimes people will say, I don't need to go to church. Why should I go to church? I don't believe in organized religion. That's sort of the major cop-out phrase that people like to use. All that is is a smoke and mirrors phrase for saying, I don't want to be accountable to anybody. I don't want to put my life in the accountability of other believers who can watch me, encourage me, reprove me, hold me accountable. And that is dangerous. Proverbs 18, it says uh, that somebody who is not wise will isolate himself. He who isolates himself seeks his own desire, says Solomon. He rages against all wisdom. So... God, in his wisdom, 
saved us individually. You had your own salvation, time, and story. But now we're to walk together corporately. We're to live corporately. We're to be accountable corporately. We're a part of his body, the church. Well, can I be a Christian without belonging to a church? I suppose technically you can if you know Jesus Christ and you're committed to him. Yes, you're a believer. But I remember John saying, if you love God, you're going to love his people. And one of the signs that you love God is that you love his people so that if somebody says, I love God, but I don't love his people, there's the discrepancy. So can you be a Christian without belonging to a church? Well, that's sort of like being a tuba player without belonging to an orchestra. Yeah, you can toot your own horn over in the corner, but have you ever heard a tuba by itself? Have you ever bought a tuba solo album? Listen to this tuba, but that's all it is. Yeah, but it's tuba. It's like being a soldier without an army. It's like being a bee without a hive, a seaman without a ship, a football player without a team. Christians need other Christians. You need the church. And you know what? The church needs you because there's only one of you. You are one of a kind. When God made you, and made you born again, he threw away the mold. And that's not just a cliche, that's biblical. That is, like a snowflake or fingerprints, you have your own unique gift mix. And nobody's quite like you. There, there might be some similar to you in the way you operate, but nobody's quite like you. We are robbed if you don't get involved. And you rob others and, and yourself of the blessing if you don't get involved. So the concept of the body of Christ is replete through this entire section of the book of Ephesians. And one of the key factors you're going to notice, we'll read, we read really down to verse 16 last time, but we skipped over a huge chunk. We really took it down to about verse 6. One of the keys here is the word gifts. You have spiritual gifts. At Christmas time, you buy gifts for people. And, and I know it's true. Correct me if I'm wrong. One of the biggest challenges is what to buy somebody. What would they like? Well, maybe they already have that. Or maybe they're not into that. What if it's too big? What if it's too it's, it's It's hard to know what to buy someone. And you've all received gifts from people where they really missed the mark, right? You open it up in front of them, and they're looking at you with bated breath, and you can only say, Boy, that's the most interesting thing I've ever seen in my life. I don't have one. And in the back of your mind, you're thinking one word, return, return, return. I'm taking this baby back. Hope the receipt's in there. Because you'll never use it. Or you'll store it in the garage or put it in a closet or rewrap it and give it to somebody else. <laughs> it was just a miss. When God gives gifts, they're always the right ones. He never gives you a gift. And in this case, I'm talking about a capacity or an enabling that you have to say, God, this doesn't work. Take it back. It's always the right gift for you and for the work God has called you to do. Which leads me to make this statement. 
It is then, therefore, an affront to the wisdom of God and the love of God to not discover your gift or gifts and use them in the church. If indeed God has gifted every believer, which the Bible says plainly he has, for you and I not to discover and utilize them is an affront to the wisdom, the plan, and the love of God. So we must discover our gifts. And you'll find this term of giftedness used all the way throughout. Well, chapter 4 is the walk of the believer, right? The first three chapters, the wealth, and then the walk. And the last section of the book, the warfare of the believer. So now we're dealing with the walk, and principally we discover when we walk in the Spirit, we don't walk alone. We walk with others. We are accountable to the body of Christ. We're different from one another in a lot of ways. If we were to compare stories, if we had the time, if this were a home fellowship, and I could say, tell me your background, tell me your likes, where do you come from? What cultural background and baggage is yours uniquely. We would discover how different we are to the extent that some of us would be absolutely amazed that we made it together in the same room. And it would only be by an act of God, by a move of the Holy Spirit, by the blood of Christ, to get us all together. Because in normal, ordinary, daily life circumstances, because there are those differences and lack of certain similarities among some of us, we wouldn't be hanging out. In fact, you've already discovered that in the church there's people you love, others you like, others you tolerate, others you don't like, others you sit on the other side of the church from or attend a wholly different service or even listen by radio. It's that bad. Moody Monthly, in an article, once put it this way, there's a lot of different kind of nuts in the Lord's fruitcake. (laughs) And here we are, a bunch of nuts all together, making that fruitcake hopefully pleasant. Let's read the first 11 verses, and I want to talk to you, as I said, about God's bodybuilding program, how he does it, that is, his pattern, why he does it, that is his purpose, and with what he does it. And we'll see that in these verses. I, uh, let's begin in verse 7. But to each one of us is given, excuse me, but to each one of us grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, he says, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive, and he gave gifts to men. Now this, he ascended. What does it mean but that he also first descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is also the one who ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists. Note that, some, not all, and some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come to the unity of the, son, uh, of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about 
with every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, in the cunning craftiness by which they lie in wait to deceive. But speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ, from whom the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies according to the effective working by which every part does its share, causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. Let's quickly pray before we jump in and uncover these verses. Heavenly Father, we are your body. We are members individually. You've called us. You own us. We are not our own. We are bought with a price. And so, Lord, we need to know as your property, infused with your calling and gifts, where we fit, how we fit, and what is the purpose for our gathering together. Help us to discover these in Jesus' name. Amen. First of all, the pattern. Let me sum it up for you. This is how God builds up the body. God gives gifts to people. And he gives gifted people, it says here, some evangelists, pastor, teachers, etc. He gives gifts to people. He gives gifted people to churches. So he uh, equips the saints with gifts. The saints, in turn, serve other saints. And when that happens, the whole body is built up. That's the pattern. That's how it works, based on the gifts that God gives. What is a gift? Let me tell you what it's not. A spiritual gift is not a natural talent. Now, some of you have natural inclinations uh, toward... You, you have a an aptitude toward uh, being a mechanical person. Others, a very artistic person, a creative person. Um, some of you play the piano really well. Others of you, it wouldn't be good to hear you uh, on a keyboard, uh, even after a lot of practice, maybe. It's just not a talent. Now, you can, you can hone that and practice it, but some of you have just a natural capability. A spiritual gift, on the other hand, is a spiritual capability to do the work of God. And all of you are gifted spiritually. You might think, I don't have any talents. It's not the issue. If God calls you, God will gift you spiritually. Now, having said that, there is sometimes an interface between natural talent and spiritual capability. You've noticed that. But they're different. For instance, you might have a pleasant voice. That's a talent. But God may give you, with that talent, the spiritual gift of encouragement, either verbally or in music, to be able to combine both of the talent and the gift and make it a beautiful package to give to somebody. Uh, some people are creative in their ability to organize. They're visionaries. That's a talent. But then there's a spiritual gift of faith to believe God for things beyond the ordinary Christian. You get both of those together, it can be powerful. Something God gave you in your first birth and something God gave you in your second birth. Talent, gift. Uh, some of you have a knack at speaking, and uh, that's a talent. But you put that with a, a gift of evangelism or a gift of teaching, and it can be powerful. So gifts and talents are different, but they can often interface. He's talking here about spiritual capabilities. 
Let me just underscore the fact once again that even if you think you are the most uncoordinated, ill-talented person on the face of the earth, that, even if you were to stand in front of me and goes, I cannot do anything at all, I'm uncoordinated, I can't speak, I, I'm afraid to do this, this, and the other thing, I would tell you, tough toast. So what? I would tell you, you are still a minister of the gospel in some capacity. And you know who I would use as my prime example? Moses, who God called to be a spokesperson, a leader of Israel, and he stuttered and said, Lord, uh, I'm a man uncircumcised in speech. And God said, so? I'm paraphrasing it a little bit. <laughs> but he says, I've called you. I'll be with you. I'll put my words in your mouth. So, God has gifted you. What is it he has gifted you to do? In verse 7, notice it says, But to each one of us grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. The word begins in the way my teacher always taught me never to begin a sentence. Never begin with the word but. Paul did, and he was inspired by the Holy Spirit. So there. <laughs> I draw your attention to that because it is there for a reason. He is shifting emphasis. He is shifting gears. This is uh, a negative conjunction used in, in an adversive sense, as if to say, in spite of that, or besides all of that. And here's this point. In the previous verses, he emphasizes unity. Now in verse 7, he emphasizes diversity. In the first verse, several verses, he emphasizes um, the, the whole body together. Here he emphasizes the individual for the sake of the whole body. So he's speaking of the diversity. But to each one, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, he says, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. We so often feel that when a Christian is saved, as soon as he comes forward or she comes forward at an altar call or we lead them in the sinner's prayer, we've got to somehow now stick them in a mold. This is our little Christian mold. You have to now dress like us and act like us and read the same version of the Bible we do and use the same catchphrases we do. And so there's this undercurrent sometimes in churches where we think we save them and we press them in a mold. One of the unique things about the gifts of the Spirit is not only are there different gifts, but go back sometime and read 1 Corinthians 12. Even those with the exact same gift operate it differently. Two Bible teachers teach differently. Given the same text, they'll approach it differently. The truth will be there, but there may be different emphases, nuances, etc. If you gave Charles Swindoll a text and gave Raul Reese the identical text, you would have two entirely different messages, guaranteed. 
Both are gifted teachers. Both are impassioned speakers. The gift of evangelism works the same way. You might have a guy like Billy Graham who wouldn't blink an eye to stand in front of millions of people and say, if you don't know Christ, you come. <laughs> but you could take someone else with a legitimate gift of evangelism, put him in front of a crowd or her in front of a crowd, they'd freeze. They could operate their gift of evangelism one-on-one, -on -one, maybe better than Billy Graham could. When it comes to building a relationship, digging into their life, learning history, background, and playing off uh, the information that is given, wonderful. I had a friend who was gifted in evangelism who was a letter writer, a skilled writer, beautiful letters. One-on-one, -on -one, he was eh, okay, but in letters, fabulous. Some like to knock on doors and cold turkey as the person opens the door say, Good afternoon, my name is so-and-so. I want to tell you about Jesus Christ and his love for you, and they're good at it. Others, some of us, are frightened at the thought. We would knock on the door and run away. <laughs> or pray, dear Jesus, may no one be home today in this home. Amen. It doesn't mean they don't have the gift. It means it operates differently, perhaps. So they're like fingerprints, or they're like snowflakes. They're, they're different, but it's according to the measure of Christ's gift. Now, uh, verse 8, he's quoting a psalm, and I want to draw your attention to that. Therefore, he says, he's quoting Psalm 68, When he ascended on high, he led captivity captive, he gave gifts to men. Paul is quoting, as I mentioned, from Psalm 68. It's a psalm written by David. Can I tell you about the psalm? David wrote it as a victory hymn when the armies, his armies, conquered the Jebusite city, the city of Jerusalem. It turned it from Jebus to Jerusalem. It was a song written about that, a hymn written after that event. And he's drawing a picture. Whenever a king, a warrior, would conquer a city, he would take spoils of war with him, gifts, so to speak, pass them out to his men, his soldiers, he would also form a parade behind him, a victory party, a victory march of the soldiers, enemy soldiers he took captive in the battle, as if to display them before his own city. Look who I have captured. Not only that, but the king would also have the soldiers of his own who had been captured by the enemy that he released and set free, he would also use them in the victory march, as if to say, I have recaptured the captives. And they're on display to say, I've captured my own men back, and I've set them free. And I've given them gifts. I've, I passed the loot out to all of them. That's the imagery that he has in mind. And that's why it says, now this, he ascended. What does it mean but that he also descended to the lower parts of the earth first? He who descended is the one who ascended far above all heavens that he might fill all things. And he has given himself some to be apostles. And there's a list of these few gifts. He's speaking about Jesus. Jesus, our mighty warrior, our victor, our king, who conquered the kingdom of Satan, so to speak. He's conquered at the cross and at his resurrection and ascension. He's conquered uh, Satan's dominion and hold 
over certain people like us. He has taken us who were captives and slaves to sin, and he has set us free. He has recaptured the captives, and he has given gifts to us. When did it happen? It happened when Jesus came to the earth, died on the cross, rose from the dead, and ascended up into heaven. Now, you will notice it says, he that ascended, what does it mean but that he also first descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is the one who ascended far above. When did he descend? Well, I'll tell you primarily what I think the passage means. Primarily, he descended at his incarnation. Jesus left heaven, descended to the earth, to the womb of a woman, to Bethlehem, and in that, that humble environment of the earth, he lived like a man, the perfect life we could never live. He went to the cross, died for our sins, and then he ascended up into heaven. You'll notice the term, lower parts of the earth. I looked it up. It's used several times in the Old Testament. It usually, usually refers to death or burial or the womb. I was formed in the lower parts of the earth, David said, being formed in the womb. The New English Bible translates it, Jesus descended to the lowest level, even to the very earth itself. So a lot of people believe that Jesus' descent was at Bethlehem, at the incarnation. Then he lived, then he died, then he ascended. And that's probably the meaning of this text. However, if you read Peter's letters, Peter tells us that Jesus didn't just descend from heaven to the earth, from heaven to a womb in Bethlehem, from heaven to this dirty earth to be rejected. He went even further. And I just want you to notice it. Turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 3. And hopefully I'll explain some things that have been, you've been wondering about for a while. 1 Peter chapter 3. Keep in mind what you just read. And look at 1 Peter 3, verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, by whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison, who formerly were disobedient when once the long-suffering of God waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight souls, were saved through water. When Jesus died, he died on the cross. He really physically died. At the same time, he was alive in the Spirit. And according to Peter, he descended and preached to these demonic souls who were kept captive in Hades. And when I say he preached, he wasn't telling them how to get saved. He wasn't passing out the four spiritual laws or holding an evangelistic crusade saying, and you demons, come, come forward. The word is not euangelion, to evangelize. It's the word caruso, to make a proclamation of a fact. Jesus died physically, but in the spirit, his spirit went to those demons in Hades and announced that their hold on mankind was over. Announced that the sacrifice had been completed. 
He didn't suffer in hell, as some of the false teachers tell us. His soul didn't have to go to a place of hell and be tormented. He simply made a proclamation. And the early church fathers formed it this way in putting these two passages together. That when Jesus died on the cross, he went and made a proclamation to one part of Sheol, the grave, about what he'd done, and opened the door to the other part of Sheol to let those captives free, those who had been uh, Old Testament saints believing uh, in the future Messiah to come, he had now come and he enabled them to be in his presence. And that's based upon Ephesians, 1 Peter, and Luke chapter 16 about Abraham's bosom. If you're not familiar with that passage, you can go home and read it. So that's, that's the uh, composite teaching of the scripture and that's how the early church fathers put it. But back to Ephesians. I think the plain meaning of the text is Jesus descended to the earth and then he ascended into the heavens. And, and here's the point. Why, why would he mention that? Here's the point. When he ascended into heaven, he sent who? Who did he send after he left? The Holy Spirit. And the point is, the gifts came by the coming of the Holy Spirit, whom Jesus gave when he ascended into heaven. So the one who gave the gifts is the ascended Christ, who dispatched the Holy Spirit, and gifts were given to the church. And he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers. And that's a short list of spiritual enablings. It's not the entire list. There are many more. Romans has a list. 1 Corinthians 12 and 14 continues the list. But here are a list of a few gifts, the foundational gifts of the church that help build up the body of Christ. Notice the first one. He himself gave some to be apostles. What is an apostle? Are there any apostles left? It's not an easy question to answer. Are the apostles referring to only the 12 apostles, or should we think beyond the 12? Well, to answer that, I'll answer it this way. In the strict sense, the office of an apostle is over. There were several disciples. Jesus chose 12 to be apostles. Apostolos. One commissioned or sent out on a specific mission. That's what the term means. To be considered an apostle, you had to meet certain criterion. You had to have physically, visibly seen the Lord Jesus in his earthly ministry. You had to be a witness of his resurrection, according to the scriptures. And you had the ability to perform miraculous works. Paul said, do I not demonstrate the miraculous signs of an apostle? That's in the strict sense. So in that sense, there are no more apostles after them. But in the functional sense... They continue to this day. You say, Skip, what do you mean by that? Is that just semantics? No, it's not. I take, I take that from the scripture. Because having said what I just said, did you know that not only were the 12 in scripture called apostles, Barnabas was called an apostle. He wasn't one of the original 12. Timothy was called an apostle. He wasn't one of the original 12. Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles, wasn't certainly one of the original 12. 
Silvanus is called an apostle in the Bible. Andronicus is called an apostle in the Bible. Junia is called an apostle in the Bible. The Eastern Church saw that apostles were missionaries who, like Paul, like Timothy, like Silvanus, went out to establish new churches, new works, pioneer missionaries. We just sent Jay and Sonny back to Uganda. They went over there and pioneered a whole set of churches, orphanages, prison ministries, and just plowed that ground. In that functional sense, they are apostolic. There's also further proof in post-apostolic writings. There is one manual that came out after the early church or during the early church days, but after the writing of the New Testament. A document known as the Didache. The Didache is it's a word that means the teaching or the doctrine. It was the teaching of the twelve, it was called the apostles, on how churches can spot false apostles. So here, here they are talking about true and false apostles in a post-apostolic era. And the inference in the writing is that these were missionaries, um, uh, people who had gone out into areas untouched, unreached for the gospel. So I spent a lot of time on that word, but I wanted to clear it up because it's a frequent question. He gave himself some to be apostles, some prophets. I think in the New Testament sense, not the Old Testament sense, Forthtelling as well as foretelling the future. Some evangelists, some pastors, and teachers. There's something else I want you to notice in that verse. You see the, the words pastors and teachers? The Greek language, it says, poimenos kai didaskalus. You say, that means, that's, that means nothing to me, Skip. It's all Greek to me. <laughs> the way it is formed, there is a law in the Greek grammar called the Granville-Sharp Law. And the construction is such, say the scholars, that the word, the phrase, pastors and teachers, refers to one person. And the better translation would be pastors, that is teachers or pastors who are in particular teachers. In other words, uh, for the edifying of the body of Christ, God has given to the church teaching pastors, pastors with the gift of teaching, which by the way is one of the qualifications for a pastor. According to Paul and Timothy, he says they have to be able or apt to teach, building up the church with the, the knowledge of the word of God. So it refers to one one office, one person primarily. Let me just, in case you're going, well, that's interesting, but so what? Here's the so what. Too often, churches, when looking for pastors, look for anything but teachers. Oh, they want an exhorter, or they want an evangelist, or they want an administrator, or they want somebody who can have a, you know, bang up kind of a, a project in the community and get other people involved but lacking the gift of teaching. That's why the church becomes weakened. And Paul's point is God has given these gifted people to the church so they can be built up so that they can do the work of the ministry. Look at verse 12. Here's the pattern. He's given them for the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry, 
for the edifying of the body of Christ. You see the pattern? God equips people with gifts, and then those people equipped with gifts serve other people, and the body of Christ is built up. I love this verse. It tells me that the pastor isn't called to do all the work. But that's traditionally how it's been seen. We pay you to do this stuff. You do it all. No, the pastor isn't called to do it all. The pastor's called to equip others to do it all. Isn't that great? I love it. <laughs> Takes a load off me. That's why when people come to me and say, there's this need in the body of Christ. How come you're not fixing it? I say, I think you're called to fix it. I see myself, as I told the School of Ministry this week, as a divine talent scout. Knowing the Word, knowing the Lord, knowing how gifts operate, I can see certain gifts in people, and when they come and they have a vision, I say, I have a hunch that you're gifted for this. Me? Not me. Yeah, you. Why me? Because you're the one with the complaint. I mean, you're the one that saw the need, so <laughs> go for it, man. Fix it. I'm behind you. Pat on the back. I love you. In Jesus' name, go do it. Somebody once told me that pastors die the death of a thousand expectations. Everybody coming into a church has a few expectations of that pastor. It is impossible for that man to do them all. And if he tries to, he will burn out. I've watched it too many times. It's better for him to find gifted people around him who will also find gifted people around them, who will also find gifted people around them. And that's how it gets done. One person, no matter how gifted, can do the ministry alone. Dwight L. Moody said, I would rather find ten men to do the work than to do the work of ten men. Moses learned that lesson, didn't he? Remember Exodus 18? His father-in-law Jethro was watching him work all day long, stand as the people came in a long line to have Moses solve every problem, and in the afternoon thinking that Jethro, his father-in-law, would say, Moses, you are the most amazing minister of the gospel I've ever seen. He said, Moses, I looked at you today, and it wasn't a pretty picture. You're going to wear yourself out because you can't possibly do that all day long. And you're going to wear them out because this is a bottleneck system. It's inefficient. They're waiting in line to talk to you, and, and there's no way that they can have their needs met by waiting to talk to one man. It's impossible. You'll wear them out. So you find 70 people, 70 men to share this burden with and have them do all that stuff and bring the hard cases to you. You know what? The next few weeks, Moses probably had great sleep, don't you think? Knowing that there were others that God called up. And here it is for the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying or building up of the body of Christ. So that's his pattern. That's how he does it. Why does he do it? Here's the purpose. Verse 13. Until we all come to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men and the cunning craftiness by which they lie in wait to deceive, but speaking the truth in love, may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ. 
Why does he build up the body? Why is all this important to you and to me? I want you to look and notice there's three reasons. Here's the purpose. Number one, look at verse 13. See the word unity? That's the first purpose of building up the body of Christ. So there'll be unity between us. Now that doesn't mean we agree on everything. It means we function smoothly. Think of your body. All of the parts are connected and there is a master organ called the brain. Your brain is an amazing thing. 10 billion nerve units. 10 billion nerve units with the capacity to feel, see, uh, uh, hear all of this input that comes its way. It controls over 600 muscles in the body, ligaments, etc. And when the parts are connected to the brain and the brain is telling it what to do, it's an amazing thing. Jesus is the head, the master unit, the brain giving out all of the signals. The Holy Spirit, well picture him like the nervous system, conveying the synapse, the message, the electrical impulse from the brain through the body to the various parts. And your body is an incredible example of teamwork. Uh, your stomach sends a message to the brain because it contracts and all the acids go through it. It's saying, I'm hungry. It's just smelled the barbecue in the back porch. So it goes into the brain. The brain sends a message to the stomach. The stomach muscles and the uh, lining contracts. And you go, oh, I'm hungry. The brain then sends a message to the legs. Walk to the kitchen. <laughs> and then the eyes see the hamburger. The nose smells the onions. The hand grabs it all and stuffs it in the mouth and you have a meal. Amazing example of unity. When you and I are in right relationship to Christ our head, the Holy Spirit, the nervous system, and one another, it's unity. Functions smoothly. That's the first purpose. The second purpose is maturity. Look at verse 12. Uh, I already read that, verse 12. Look at verse 13. I already read that too. Okay, uh, second half of verse 13. The eyes start to go at this age. <laughs> to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. You know what the word perfect means? Don't get discouraged by it, because you're going, I'm not perfect. No one is. The word perfect means mature, telos, grown up. Physical growth is pretty much automatic. You set a baby in this world, give it food and a little bit of love, and it grows up. Not spiritual growth. You can be a spiritual baby for 30 years and never grow beyond a point of infancy spiritually. There has to be a willing cooperation, and the goal is to be a mature man or woman. And, and, and what, is, what, what is the aim we're reaching at? Only to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Let me ask you a question tonight. Are you just like Jesus? Then none of you has the right to say, I've heard enough Bible study. I've been in church enough in my life. I've grown enough spiritually. Until you're like Christ, friend, you've got a lot of growing to do, which means you're going to be growing spiritually, hopefully, till you die and you are changed instantly in his presence. Until then, we grow. And there's a third reason. Stability. 
verse 14, that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men. Immature believers are susceptible believers. There's always somebody around looking, by the way, for susceptible, gullible, young, immature believers. I call them gypsy Christians. They're forever wandering. They're never rooted. This church, that church, this event, that event. They never really grow through into something. Cultists are looking for these kind of people. They come to church. They even come to this church. I've spotted them on several occasions, smiling, as if to say, oh, I'm, you know, I'm part of it too. But my concern is what conversations are they having with people after church? They're looking. Here's the thing about a cultist. Did you know that most cultists were raised in traditional Orthodox Christian churches? They left the churches. They don't go out and win souls. What they do is go to churches and find young, immature, susceptible believers. My question is, why did they leave the church in the first place? One of the sad truths is the church isn't doing its job, maturing people. The average age in America is around age 25. The average age in most churches is age 55. It tells me there's a huge group that is falling out of most churches. Because the church isn't doing its job, not equipping them. So unity, maturity, stability. And we'll grow up, verse 15, in all things into him who is the head, Christ, from whom the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies, according to the effective working by which every part does its share, causes growth for the body for the edifying of itself in love. So we need to be rightly connected to the head, Jesus, rightly connected to the Holy Spirit. Discover your gifts. Use them. And when you do, you'll be rightly connected to each other because if Jesus is the head and if the Holy Spirit is the nervous system, then love is the circulatory system. Speak the truth in love. Speak the truth. Sometimes that could even be a, rebu a rebuke, a reproof, but do it in the spirit of love. Okay? Somebody once said that a pat on the back though only a few vertebrae removed from a kick in the pants, is miles ahead in results. Speak the truth to one another in love, and let's edify each other. Use your gifts. I need you. You need each other. 